This podcast is produced by Arts Council England. For more content like this, visit artscouncil.org.uk or soundcloud.com forward slash Arts Council England. Morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to make a start. I, I guess people are going to uh, drift in as we, as, as we go along. Uh, my name's Richard Lees. I am the leader of Manchester City Council, so this is a day out for me in Salford. Um, uh, happy, to be he- happy to be here. I'm chairing this morning's uh, session. In terms of how we're going to do it, we've got a couple of uh, short presentations, then we're going to move into a conversation around the room. There are a couple of roving mics uh, within, uh, within the room. Uh, everything is being uh, recorded, and I've been asked to ask you uh, to make sure that when you contribute to the discussion, you say who you are and uh, where you're uh, from. Unless, of course, you want to be anonymous, in which case you can ignore that completely uh, and not say who, uh, who you are, but we prefer you to say who, uh, who, who you are. Uh, the session is about... Uh, Artists and a changing uh, society. I think it's a little bit about the uh, connection between uh, arts, politics, power, uh, a changing world. And uh, I'll approach this subject from the point of view of being a, uh, a politician, certainly not from the point of view of being, uh, uh, being an artist. And I, I suppose to just introduce it, I think the question about why we as a city council would put several million pounds a year into uh, the arts, everything from, at one end, the Manchester International Festival down to uh, the smallest-scale community uh, activities. Uh, why, why do we choose to do that? And I think there are three things for me uh, that are around that, and one of them is to do with quality of life, uh, how people live their, uh, their, their lives that... Uh, uh, life is more than just bricks and mortar. It's it's a job, but it's more than uh, a, a job. It's more than uh, getting yourself fed and wa- uh, fed and watered. And uh, arts, culture, an important part of quality of life. And the second thing I say is is that for anybody who is engaged in the arts, it encourages thinking, it encourages creativity. Uh, we're going into a, a world, certainly for this country, where knowledge. Uh, a knowledge-based economy are ever more Im- important. And I think the ability of the arts to provoke thought, to provoke creativity, helps people uh, become part of that society based around knowledge. And that leads into the third reason, probably the ultimate reason, uh, why we as the City Council put money into the arts. The arts employ people, and actually over the... Uh, past decade or so have incre- uh, employed more people rather than uh, uh, less, less people, so they contribute directly to the economy. They also contribute indirectly to the economy, because where do, where do people want to live? Where do people want to have uh, uh, businesses? Where do they want their, to bring their families up? They want to bring them up where there is uh, a, a rich life, and uh, arts, culture are an important part of that uh, as well. So, in some respects, a, a very economically deterministic view of the role of arts and culture, but that's because I'm coming from the perspective of a, of, of a politician. Some of the other questions we might want to ask uh, in this session, 
Now, do the arts open doors? Well, I can think of a few examples where arts have closed doors as quickly as they've, uh, they've opened doors, but uh, do the arts have the capacity to, to do that? Uh, we're going to go to our two speakers, and uh, then when we get into the discussion, a few, I'll put a few questions to you. Uh, you've got the CVs for both speakers within uh, your pack, so I'm not going to spend time uh, reading out what you've already got to look at uh, yourself. Uh, our first speaker is uh, Gavin Stride. Uh, Gavin is from Farnham, Direct Farnham Maltings and Caravan. And uh, over to you, Gavin. Thank you. Um, so uh, the first thing to say to, is that the um, part of Tim Etchell's will be played by Gavin Stride uh, today because um, I only knew on Friday that I was doing this. So um, I always make it up, but I'll be really making it up today. Um, in fact, we're all making it up all the time, and that's okay, isn't it? Um, so, uh, I don't really understand this question. When I was given it of what's the role of the artist in society, I, I struggled with it. And I, as I often will do, is put the words the other way around and thought, what's the role of society in a changing artist? And, and that began to make a bit more sense for me, because, um, to be honest, I don't ever describe myself as an artist. I make plays... Um, some of the time, but some of the time I'm sitting looking at budgets. Some of the time I'm talking to young artists about how they make their work and how they produce. Some of the time I'm caught up in arts politics, and I'm not sure if when I'm doing all those other things I could describe myself as an artist. And as I say, I, I never do. It's something that other, a label that other people give me. And, um, and I'm not really sure that I'm well served by the word, because I think that it's what I do. It's deeply embedded me. I don't think of myself uh, as one thing or another. I describe myself as what I do, and what I do is help people live longer, feel safer, be happier, and I use the arts to achieve that. Um, in my view, it's a natural instinct for people to make art, and it's often schooled out of us. We could just as easily say, what's the role of breathing in society or walking in society? Um, when I was sort of preparing over the weekend for this, I started reading around and discovered that the word art, in the way that we've come to use it to describe the fine arts, doesn't really appear until 1880. It's an industrial world for a, peer, for a model that describes consumers and makers. Um, creativity doesn't appear in the 1930s Oxford English Dictionary. Again, an industrial world, word to describe an industry. Um, that I don't actually think is serving us well. And um, art is one of those words that's almost impossible to translate into a non-Western language because they don't have a view of a separate word to describe a way of imagining. So all of this kind of got me thinking, are we really dealing with the right conversation? So I was talking to my local MP, who I won't name, for, to protect him, um, about something or other. And um, he said in the middle of an argument, you should get involved in politics. And I said, I'm far too busy trying to make the world a better place to get involved in politics. <laughs> and, I, and I feel the same about art. I'm far too busy trying to make the world a better place to get involved in art or the way in which we've come to understand what art is or isn't. You know, is art only those things that's funded by the Arts Council? Clearly not. So here are a few things that I think art is. It's, the, it's making art is the way human beings construct meaning from their experience and describe who they are. 
It is what we use to think about difficult problems, express joy and wonder in everyday life. It is how we deal with emotion, pass on wisdom to our children. It's part of our evolutionary inheritance. It's in our genes. And so the very minute that we start to separate out the notion of an artist from the notion of society, we are serving ourselves badly. Um, I've used this quote before, but it's my favourite quote. Isabel Allende talks about the arts being to humankind what dreams are to the individual. Um, there's another kind of bit of stuff I want to talk about, which is around evidence. Medical professionals tell us that participation in artistic activity has incontrovertible benefits for our physical and mental health. We all know that when we get involved in making art, we feel better, we understand the world better, we adapt, we connect. However, watching it is a very, very passive activity, and the evidence suggests that there's far less benefit from seeing it to making it. So I am a complete champion for encouraging people to make art first and foremost. That is not to say that we shouldn't support and develop excellence when we see it. And as football has demonstrated, the more people that, that play football, the, more, the better they'll understand what an extraordinary footballer looks like. Studies also show that in old age, these amateurs use fewer prescription drugs, go to the doctor less, and are more independent. Children who learn a musical instrument are better at maths. We know these things, and we, re we, don't, respond, we don't set policy based on that learning. I think that Western culture, and I have to say, and I'm a close friend of the Arts Council, are sometimes guilty of organising policy from the other end from the professional artist's view of the world rather than from society's needs and view of the world. We, we live in a, in a, cons a consumer-industrial model of the arts. We should do and I also think, which should be in another panel, that we should stop describing ourselves as part of the cultural industries. I actually think we're poorly served by defining ourselves by the jobs we create, any more than the church would describe itself as part of the religious industries and demonstrate its value to society by the number of jobs it's created. Um, we need to challenge our view of what the arts are and are not. We need to reject ideas of things posed as false opposites. This was picked up on the panel this morning. Often used to prop up an established contemporary model, arts world model. Here are a few. That excellence is the opposite of popular. It isn't. That accessible is the opposite of, uh, of experimental. It isn't. That makers are the opposite of audience. They aren't. That local is the opposite of international. That amateur is the opposite of professional. People express themselves in all sorts of ways as knitters, cooks, gardeners, cake decorators. They, we tell stories to our children. We dance at weddings, we speak poetry at funeral, we sing songs to our country at the start of our football match. Artists are everywhere. Thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks very much, uh, Gavin. And we're supposed to be provoking, and I think there's a fair bit of... Uh, uh, provocation there, but I'll add a little bit of provocation. I would describe the church as part of the religious industries. But uh, um, Our next spe speaker is the uh, chief executive and founder of uh, Future Everything. He's going to wander around a bit, uh, Drew Hammond. Thank you. 
thank you. Uh, I'm interested in how artists, uh, curators, uh, we as arts professionals can shape society. Um, myself, uh, my day job is I'm a, I'm a curator. Um, my problem is one day I got lost on the, the way to the gallery and I found myself curating not just artworks but other kinds of things. And I came to understand that I'd found myself curating innovation and I'd found myself collaborating in social change. So what's my art form, first of all? Um, I call it the art formerly known as New Media Art, um, which I now just call art. And what's really interesting about the world I inhabit, which is a digital world, is it's never been easier for people to affect change. And the last time it was like this, the last time we were living through such change, 1439 and the Gutenberg printing press. That's the last time society went through this level of transformation. Before that, I don't know, writing? Now imagine two artists looking at the Gutenberg printing press. One of those artists might look at the Gutenberg printing press and think, I'm going to produce the most beautiful pamphlet there's ever been. Fair enough. The other artist might look at the, the printing press and think, I'm going to change the world. Now, that's not a new thing. Um, Joseph Boys, it's not about digital culture. Big inspiration for me, the, the idea of art as social sculpture, the idea that artists can intervene. And as we've heard, the idea that art is separate from society and economy, it's a modern invention, it's a myth. But it's not as if the digital age either makes everything wonderful. I don't think it's a utopia. I don't think people on Facebook are empowered. I think they're disempowered. But you do see the rise of, of empowered people. We've seen Occupy, we've seen the Arab Spring, we've seen groups such as anonymous hackers who will stand up to corporations, the likes of the FBI. Here's an example of an artwork, very provocative artwork. This is an artwork from this year by Julian Oliver. It's called the Transparency Grenade. And it's both a sculptural object and an artwork, but it's also a real device and tool for intervention and activism. What it is, it's a grenade, and it's designed for people on boardrooms of companies where they may be concerned for corruption or lack of transparency. And people are able to pull the pin on the grenade, and when they do, it instantly publishes to the internet every document on every desktop and all the laptops in that meeting with a, with a, with a tag to Google Maps so you know exactly what was, what was being said where. And that's an artwork, but that's a real intervention. Now, myself, uh, my main thing, I run Future Everything. It's a festival, been going 17 years. Uh, our program's being announced in 10 days. We've got the best festival team in the world working to sign that off at the moment. It's in Manchester. We do lots of performances. We have an award. There's Sir Richard. Um, uh, we, have, uh, we do exhibitions. Uh, the kind of ethos, which I can talk about later, is bringing the future into the present in the art exhibition. Uh, we're, we're hopefully, can't say too much, we're waiting for our funding confirmed for uh, an Olympics project, a data visualization, visualizing in real time the emotional response as medals are won and lost all around the globe. So how can we, in digital media, capture the emotional intensity across the world in that instant? Never been possible to do before. 
We also work in non-conventional ways. We're also concerned with addressing the digital divide, so we do work around data literacy. And some of the most unusual work we do, which really gets us into this idea of curating innovation, is we do projects that are artworks and that we're happy to stand up as art, but also are research or innovation. In this case, the Met Office approached us and together, well, they set us the challenge. Could we develop a, a playful, performative way to capture a data set on local climate that they couldn't capture in any other way? We were interested in the urban heat island phenomenon. An indicator of that is wind flow. So we devised these bubble-blowing games, the bubble race and the bubble chase, to give thousands of simultaneous readings across a city of wind uh, direction and speed, which they couldn't capture in any other way. We've done other projects which have taken us further away from culture, but still bringing that method, bringing the curatorial practice from the arts into other contexts. We had a project about open data. Uh, we, we lobbied and we released lots of public data. Uh, lots of great stuff was built using it. And this led to the formation of Data GM, uh, the Greater Manchester Data Store. So as cultural practitioners, as a cultural organization, we led policy change in Greater Manchester and established real infrastructure that's now embraced across Greater Manchester. And this approach is quite an unusual approach. We call it Festival as Lab. The festival is a space, yes, to be inspired, to see the world differently, to be challenged by art. It's also a space where we can prototype and bring into the present, the future. We can develop and test new ideas, concepts, ways of living, technologies with our audience in the space of the festival. This has led to a very close relationship with research, uh, in particular with Lancaster University, where we have a very close relationship. The university gives the festival an umbilical cord to world-class thinking. The festival has become part of the research environment at the university, even though they're separate organizations, and part of the interface between the university and the outside world. We've also published in toolkits the, our ways of working. We've open-sourced our festival, made it accessible. And some of these methods have been formalized and built, been built on in a new £4 million Arts and Humanities Research Council knowledge exchange hub with the aim to transform the, the creative economy in the UK. And the main focus there, we're collaborating with the BBC on something called the digital public space. You've heard a lot about the space. The space is a prototype for the digital public space. And this is all about the ability of anyone, anywhere to access all the video, film, information locked up in our museums, galleries, public bodies, and create incredible new experiences with those. So I'll leave on a question. How can we, how can we all curate sculpt, paint, perform social change. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Drew. That's, uh, I think uh, both speakers in, in, in different ways have uh, I think raised the same issue, which is that there is a, an artificial separation from 
of arts from the other things that make up society and what we're seeing is a reintegration uh, take, taking place so as perhaps it would have been once is the politician is the artist is the scientist uh, is the, uh, the, the the change maker uh, as well and it's very interesting and I think what Drew's saying is that uh, the digital age in particular is making that easier uh, easier to do and easier to do at a, at a global level uh, we've got a few questions that I want you to think about and, and talk about. And bear in mind that uh, this morning is about throwing out uh, ideas and asking questions as much as uh, being able to have solutions. So here's a few questions. One is, uh, what is the role of the artist in a changing uh, society? Uh, does politics really affect the arts? And indeed, does art really affect uh, politics? How important is it that artists seed ideas and, and debate the impact on society uh, that those ideas have? What is the impact of digital? How are artists reinventing art in response to uh, digital? And I don't mean just iPad pictures uh, when I'm talking about that. Um, are there hidden opportunities for the arts through working more astutely through technology, that connection between science, technology and art? And how can we widen awareness of digital opportunities and develop new knowledge networks and trust between artists and the digital world? Or as Gavin, I think we say, is, is there really a divide between uh, artists, the digital world and the real world, for, 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 for that matter? And what gets in the way? What stops us doing the th things that bring things uh, together? Questions uh, uh, for you. We do have a couple of roving, roving mics. Uh, so I'm going to open it up to the uh, to the floor. Um, there's a lot of people in the room. I want to try and get as many people in as possible. I also want to finish on time because I've been told to. Um, so uh, over there. Um, I I'm an artist. Uh, I wanted to come back to the point that you made at the end. Can you say who you are? Or Bobby you? Baker. Okay. Um, and uh, about what what can you artists can do in this position. I just had a little kind of uh, line of thinking I would go through. My parents, who I was born in uh, suburbs in 1950s, art and, and high culture was their opportunity to get away from the war, to aspire to a higher life. Uh, and that's how the artist was the god, really, uh, that one uh, admired. I went to St. Martin's School of Art and did painting. And I really objected to the kind of elitist attitude where there was an unspoken assumption that artists were superior and we all really shouldn't tell anyone, but we were the most important people in society. So I kind of stomped off and my career since then has been various ways of examining that whole issue. And what I've come up about against, particularly over the last 10 years, is that when you become successful or seen as a successful artist, you tend to be either infantilized, considered creative, and unable to operate in a business level, or you are idolized to the point at which you're detached from, from um, what's going on. And I, I think what Gavin was saying was, was about that, this sort of innate, status quo that still is believed in society that artists and creative people are separate and, and better than and superior than and I just think that's rubbish 
And the, the thing that gives me the most joy in work I make is, is, is breaking down that hierarchy and, and collaborating. And I know you, you say it and you mean it, but when you really collaborate on an equal basis with everybody, and that includes everybody in your team, and that's what Drew was... I mean, it's just so exciting. You, you can't make a stunning website without an incredibly diverse team of skills. And the artist is part of that. And that breaks down that hierarchy. And that's what I applaud, the sort of change in power from artists as gods, because everybody has a contribution, including the people who take part in participatory work as equals. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, look I'm looking for hands. There's a hand. Thank you. Um, Alan Grindav, I'm an artist. Um, there's actually two things. I think I'm going to go with the second one, which sort of brings together a little bit um, what, um, what Gavin was saying very interestingly about the evidence about people actually making art and what Drew was saying about, um, I guess, essentially people actually having the facility to curate art. And I'm sort of quite interested because obviously the whole free market economy... Um, is based on a culture of choice. And I, I sort of have a scepticism about choice being overrated. But I'm wondering whether there's any medical evidence, say, that people actually curating their artistic choices has the same sort of social humanitarian benefits as actually making art. That may be a statement or a question. Anyone can pick up on that. Oh, yeah. um, so yes, I'll answer that. Um, for me, that's a very, very interesting question because um, in the, the sphere I work in, there's actually increasing fluidity between those roles. Um, on the one hand, uh, we're seeing uh, the rise of a new maker culture and um, a flowering of crafts, uh, traditional and digital. Um, and on the other hand, we're seeing everyone becoming a curator because the way things work in the digital realm is that we are overloaded with stimuli you don't have to go and search you have to keep things away you have to filter and what's filtering if not a function of curation and I think that's very much permeated into a formal art context where many people myself included um, in, a, in an, a conscious way are able to play with those roles a little. Um, I, I have some rigid rules in that I, I don't curate myself in my own festival, but I will sometimes fluidly move between the role of curator and artist. Um, not sure which I am at, at any one time. Um, I joke sometimes that if I'm involved in, a, in, in an art project and there's no artist in the room, I'll put my hand up and be the artist. So... Um, so to answer your question, is curating as rewarding as making? I would put them on a, a continuum these days. Um, and I think I, I also, I, that, was a one, that was one point I jotted down. I thought that was a very powerful point. Um, I think that both of those do give an awful lot. And to me, the sting in the tail there was all this focus on audiences, which we really want, is missing the point. We want the focus on not artists as an elite, but more enabled people to act as artists. Over there. My name's Sally Scheinman. I'm a visual artist. It's, um, 
I don't know if everybody here heard Wilson's, um, I don't know quite what you call it, uh, performance last night. But he talked about, and which inspired me more than anything I've heard, um, was his ideas and where they came from. And I think that's at the core of what's important. It's the idea. It's, I don't think he set out to change things. He, he set out to, um, to explore. And I think we should talk more about that than the outcomes. <laughs> Two, two people over here. Hello, I'm Maurice Sinclair from the Arts Council. It strikes me that there's... Um, what you're both talking about is quite a radical shift in the way that artists think about themselves. And that's what Bobby was touching on as well. Um, and we've used language within the Arts Council about civic space and civic leadership and artists being seeing themselves as being part of that in some way. This is not incredibly coherent, but I, I just want want you to be giving me some response and, and maybe having a conversation about that and and how audiences sit within that as well and it strikes me that there's a an umbilical cord that Gavin was describing between the audience and the, the people who find comfort in in reading poetry at a funeral and the people that we want to be talking and getting engaged in making art and somehow that has broken the the the, the thread the golden thread between those things and where once artists were storytellers and makers and part of their civic society, there's a danger that we've, we've put them somewhere else. And that because of that, there's a disconnect between the work that they make and the audiences that they're talking to and making work with. So I'm interested in how we, as, as policymakers, might be part of a conversation and a, and a help to continue to make that connect happen again. Because... If our mission is about great art for everyone, then it strikes me that the umbilical cords needs to be really, really strong between them, whatever you want to call them, Gavin, makers or um, artists, and, and the communities in which those artists and makers sit. And just behind, just there, Mary. Hello, um, my name's Anna Harding from Space in London. Um, my thinking's a bit random, but it's informed by um, young people I'm close to. Um, I came up to Manchester partly because my son lives here and he's just dropped out of university and the reason he has decided that um, university isn't for him is because he's so fed up with being tested all the time and he's a creative person so I've left my youngest son with him today and they're doing band practice and they run a radio, station, a radio show which is amazing sci-fi writing that they do and he's supporting um, a guy he shares a house with who has got some serious mental health issues, as have a number of young people around him. And so I'm kind of really interested in young creative people and the world that they're in and what on earth we're doing that connects with that, you know. Um, I feel kind of... I owe them more. And then another friend of um, my best friend's daughter who dropped out of A-levels and... She's luckily, her mum's managed to get her in to do art foundation without having art A-level. Because, again, she's a really creative young person. But the system failed her because she, she was really fed up with an education system that wasn't valuing their creativity. Um, so I think the role of um, artists in, create, in a changing society 
look to young people, they're, um, you know, demonstrating with their feet. They're fleeing from higher education because it's, maybe it's not working and it's too expensive and maybe they're being creative, they're doing their own raves, they're doing amazing stuff that isn't funded, it's all on YouTube and Flickr. Uh, we should just look at that stuff and think, well, what are we doing in relation to that flip creativity that's flourishing? Okay. So, sorry, that was random, but I just thought that's it. So while you've provoked a whole load of hands, we've got two together uh, in the middle here, and then two down at the front. So, uh... Hi, um, I'm Iris Priest. I'm an artist from Newcastle. Um, my question sort of continues from those last two points and sort of picks up on something we heard Liz Forgan say that sometimes an artist um, acts in ways that are maybe unpalatable in a vicar's tea party. And I was sort of thinking about that and thinking about this context that it's the first um, State of the Arts conference where artists have been actually invited to participate and also talking about these ideas of the kind of different languages that administrators and arts administrators talk as opposed to the ineffable and material languages that artists talk, whether there's any real, whether there's any real scope for that relationship to be stronger, whether, art, whether you think artists can have a role in sort of affecting policy directly and, and in turn sort of that affecting the language which the administrators are talking to the audiences with. Okay. Next door, yeah. <coughs> I'm Angela Kennedy, I'm an artist from Newcastle as well. Um, yes, I wanted to pick up on that point about education and just wondering about how do we feel, what responsibility do artists have in relation to how art is taught in school? Not necessarily through teaching art GCSE, but the actual act of being creative. Because my two boys have, have kind of left the education system now and I would say have kind of survived it <laughs> with a lot of support from, from their parents. And the complete disconnect of when they'd be coming home and, and what they'd have to, the hoops they'd have to go through to so-called learn about art would be the opposite of what I feel is the process of actually thinking creatively and being, feeling emancipated through learning and not feeling put down that they have to draw a leaf in a certain way or do a house in a certain way. And I think the education system in this country is absolutely appalling and it's failing so many children. And the borough where I live in Gateshead, there's probably 50% of kids come out there with less than three GCSEs because it's meaningless to them. That education system is meaningless to them. And the one thing they do that they can know they can do and is, is meaningful for them is to have a family and have kids. And who can blame them? Because they don't feel a part of the society. So I feel you know, that artists really need to, and the policymakers need to reach out and really put pressure on the education system. And all that funding that was pulled away from higher education is appalling as well. I just think it's, you know, I, I had a, a discretionary grant in the 80s, and if I'd had to take on a loan, there's no way I would have become an artist. And art emancipated me. It wasn't school that emancipated me, it was going and doing performing arts at a university. Okay, uh, Gavin wants to say a few words, then we'll come down the front. Okay. Uh, just a quick point, I, and I've only just thought it now, but it's been worrying me since I got here, which is uh, and I understand all the intentions, but Arts Council's talking about funding 50 artists to come. And it just worries me. That, uh, so what we're saying in that is artists can't afford to come, 
unless they're subsidised to come. And all the people who aren't being funded through that aren't artists. So that seems to be to be we're falling into the same trap of thinking artists are someone over there. And I, I understand the intention to invest in people who couldn't normally get here to come here in other ways, but I, I, I'm uncomfortable with that. The other thing I wanted to quickly say, which is a response to Moira, is we're still putting right a crime that was committed in 1946 when the Arts Council said, we're going to fund excellence, whereas the Sports Council said, we're going to go for participation. And the rote words we have to reclaim, and I'm sorry if they're unfashionable, are words like folk and popular. Because we've, we've, we've eschewed them at our expense. And the only word that I can find comfortable is a vernacular culture, you know, a vernacular arts that we all feel comfortable about talking with, about that isn't posed as the opposite of excellence. Thank uh, yeah. I've got about five people. Uh, one, two, three, four, and five, six. So much to say. Uh, Christine Spriggs... Uh, the regional person for youth music and an artist um, and a person and a manager and all are and a human being. Um, I, I came today wanting to talk about the change in society. I'm sorry to say, to pick up on David Edgar's point in, in a slightly gloomy way, really, because the change in society I'm starting to see is a very, very worrying one to pick up from uh, the woman who spoke from Gateshead. And what I'm worrying about is... Uh, communities and young people who uh, didn't have a voice and now they've got even less chance of having a voice. Um, uh, you know, it was very interesting the way Advezi sort of uh, uh, batted away the, the question that uh, somebody asked about uh, the uh, local government uh, and communities uh, department having an input in, in, in what's going on in terms of arts and creativity. If ever there was a, a potholing minister, I think Eric, Eric Pickles is, is, is it. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I, I, I am an idealist. I do believe in, in, in the wonder of art and the, and the beauty of art and the beauty of creativity and making things and curating things. I'm, I'm totally and utterly in love with that. But what I'm more worried about, and that's taking precedence right now, is what are we going to do to stop ourselves becoming more and more isolated, to stop ourselves becoming more and more the question of health or arts, uh, you know, what are we going to do about all these voiceless people that are sitting, you know, on the dole as we speak, just just wasting away? Because that's what's happening. Sorry. Move move across here. Down here, but <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, yeah. You're number is, five. What I think is um, <laughs> what I think is really interesting is that just at a point when the Arts Council put the artists at the centre of the conference, we're actually living in a society where artistry is a distributed function. And I think we're seeing the end of the old romantic notion of the artist as some kind of privileged, gifted person, but somebody who, something which is actually in everybody. So what Drew and Gavin were talking about is the fact that actually in this society, everybody's an artist. Everybody's curating their YouTube videos, their music, their life in a whole set of different ways. So that the whole, and that the function of changing the society and the art, exerting the artistry of changing the society belongs to all of us. So the question for me is not how are we going to change the society and shape the world, because the tools are all there for us to use. It's actually what in the society do we want to change? So when I ask myself that question, I make a little list and I say inequality I'd like to change, 
I'd like to make the rich corporations pay instead of the, instead of the middle classes and the poor. Um, I'd like to see visas for artists. I'd like to see debt-free learning for young people. I'd like to see a much more person-centred curriculum in our schools where learning becomes a joy rather than a prison. Um, and I'd like to see much more open cultural institutions. And that's only what I want to see. And I can imagine if you ask that question of every single person in the room, they would all have different things that they would like to see change. So for me, the question is, what are the key things that we would all like to collectively change? And individually and collectively, what were we going to do using the tools available to us and using the creativity and the imagination available to us? What are we going to do to change those things? Okay. So, uh, microphone heads over to the back, back there. Uh, uh, bloke at the back, then woman over there. I, I just wanted to sort of challenge uh, a little bit, uh, almost the uh, politics of despair we've been uh, uh, hearing here. I, d- I don't, I don't agree with it. And Manchester area I represent, fourth most deprived local authority in the country, so we have real, uh, real issues there. Actually, our young people, in terms of their uh, involvement in education and the, uh, what comes out of that, is getting better year by year by uh, by year. We have uh, 16 over 90 percent of our young people staying in education. There appears to me to be a willingness of our young people to get engaged. The number of people who are, are, are detached from what's going on are getting smaller and smaller and, and, uh, and smaller. Uh, the world of creativity, of making, uh, of making stuff, and I have to say that I'd, I'd be extremely worried if I knew what was really going on in the, uh, this city probably, but there's, you know, because... It's, it doesn't touch me a lot, a lot of it. That's young people doing their own thing in all sorts of, uh, of places. And some of it gets sort of semi-institutionalised at times. We've got a place like Fab Lab, where Fab Lab people can just go along and make stuff. Uh, we've got Mad Lab, where people can go and uh, play with electricity and other, other stuff like, uh, uh, like that. And you know, the idea of our uh, girl nurse tea party every other Saturday afternoon, I think it's just a, 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 great, a, a great idea of people getting engaged in a very, very open way. So that stuff is going on. It's certainly going on in Manchester. And I know because uh, hacker spaces like Mad Lab are now existing in cities all over the, uh, all over the world. So there, there is stuff where... People are doing things, are making things, are sharing that with uh, other people, and that appears to me to be growing rather than uh, uh, rather than diminishing it. So, uh, yeah, there are real issues that need addressing uh, in cities like uh, Manchester, but I think to despair about it is the wrong place to be. Uh, yeah, the bloke at the back. Um, I'm Keith Jeffrey from Corn and Derby. Um, I think uh, I want to take issue with Drew about the print and press being the most pivotal point of change in, in Derby and Yorkshire and Lancashire, the industrial revolution I think is, is probably the last time where that amount of change happened and we're still living with a mindset that goes around factories and manufacturing and so on. I do agree with the rate of change though the, with digital technology and a new type of mindset that needs to be applied when we're thinking about art and culture. We are all artists. I'm a writer in my spare time. I run an art centre. Um, we have to apply a different set of principles to how we go about thinking about what is good and great art. And I think some of those principles are about less about excellence and about being obsessed with what is being great art as opposed to being let's get people involved, let's get 
um, people participating. It's about focusing on the communities that we want to work with and en enabling their creativity to express it in the way that they feel most excited about. And in many ways, that's going back to pre-industrial times where there were carnivals, celebrations, tour troops, and, and so on. There was it was not separated from their daily life. And, and in, the industrial uh, mindset has compartmentalised things into... Uh, and this really manifests itself in a, a sort of a generational mindset. And we've, in, in Derby, we've had some funding challenges, and the leader of Derby City Council has said, in as many words, the arts are a nice-to-have. That is the, a real challenge that, that we all have, and we really need to come up with new and different and innovative ways of championing and explaining the change that is going on because this is largely a generational thing as well. You know, people coming up behind me, younger than me, are, are talking and thinking and doing things in different ways and some of the ways that I think Drew's sort of been showcasing in his work. Okay. If you're the bloke at the black at back, can we move to the woman in green in the sort of middle there? <laughs> Yeah, it's on its way, don't worry. Shall I come back with something in a sec? Yeah, yeah, because we're going over there next. Yeah, I'm a recipient of one of the artist bursaries, and I kind of feel uh, a bit Can of a Can you tell us who you are? Lauren, Lauren Sager. I'm an artist based in Manchester, and I kind of feel I have a duty to champion artists. And in listening to uh, a lot of what people said... I'm getting a bit confused because what some people are saying is there are no artists. Everybody's an artist, a politician, a doctor, an engineer is an artist. And I, and I think, well, we're supposed to be talking about artists in a changing society, so obviously there are artists who are distinct from other people who do things. I'm not a politician, and the thing that makes me an artist is that I have something in me which means I have a big imagination that I want to create things out of. And I would never choose to be a poor artist because I want to be rich. And, but if you take on the role as being, being an artist, it's not an easy decision. It's not an easy choice. So why I'm bringing that up is because artists must have a different way of operating and viewing the world and presenting the world and doing things. That doesn't mean that we've got the right to make political decisions or change people's lives, but what it does do is it gives us the ability to show people a different way of doing things. And that is the skill that I believe artists should really take up and be confident about presenting because it is different from a lot of pe other people. I believe the only really similar other route to take is as, as a true scientist. Because when you create something from your imagination, you have no idea where it's going to go and you have to go with the experience, which is like true science. And that is valuable in our society. And that is valuable when you're looking at changing society because that's the skill that could really make a difference to how things change and we're talking far too much about um, the art rather than what is it about artists that does make us distinct what is it about us that we can really uh, sell and be proud of and not be shy about um, and that's my speech thank you very much Sorry. Drew you wanted to 
Uh, well, should we take... We've had one very frustrated person over there. I, I don't want to get in the way of anyone. Well, you're not going to get in the way, because he'll come next after you. OK, fine. <laughs> um, certainly not... I don't want to come back on, on that. I don't want this to sound like it's a come up on that comment, but some of the, the really strong messages um, that I've heard from the last few minutes are around position of young people, um, education is appalling... Um, I also work in higher education and I passionately believe that we have very few spaces in this hugely pressured world where we can step back from the latest uh, commission and reflect and play and explore for a year. I think it's, it's absolutely vital. And whilst I think that, uh, yes, we can all be artists to a degree, I think that unless we provide spaces and structures in which that can be nurtured and supported and given breathe, space to breathe, there'll be a problem. And I want to throw a provocation out to the audience, which is slightly uh, uh, new, which is that, in a sense, we're all part of the problem. Um, a few people have talked about the, the generation gap, and if you, um, and one of the things that the Arts Council is very aware of is that the, the arts community are ageing, and as with pensions, uh, that creates a problem. And if, you know, the arts, uh, you know, if you think of the creativity in a bottle in the UK, our generation's the top on that bottle, you know, preventing new people coming through. So that's something to think about. But for me, the solution isn't that we all retire en masse. Uh, you could say that that would be the single greatest act we could do today to support the future creativity of the nation. And the reason is, what put this in my mind, is something that someone else said before is like, well, okay, you do all that stuff, you work in digital culture, but how's that relevant to someone who works in a theatre company or, you know, is a painter? How's that relevant? Well, it might not be relevant. But my point is that you don't want to set it up as a conflict between the generations because actually we've all got a lot to bring. We all know that, you know, it's not just young people. We've got different generations growing up now with different skills and competences. Young people are incredibly good at processing massive amounts of information and they've got the attention span of a gnat. Older people have longer attention spans, they're better at long-form thinking and we need to create spaces for young people and we also need to be more humble but also more confident and learn to collaborate with them. You've been waiting there, have you? Um, artists aren't Play-Doh. And, um, uh, yeah, 50 people did get some money to come in here. Um, artist isn't a dirty word. Um, I don't think my dad ever considered himself... Well, he was a dirty engineer because he was covered in oil. But it's not a dirty word. I've been brought up, actually, um, uh, being told that artist is more of a hobby than a job. Um, Drew, most artists can't retire right now because we don't have a pension. Um, there's probably no artist in this room who's on a full-time wage. I've been on a full-time wage twice in 30 years as a career, which I think is shameful. Uh, artists do have a job. Um, what would this conference look and sound like if an artist has shaped it? rather than just being given a bursary to come along, but given a year to shape a conference about art. Uh, Robert Wilson is still emerging. Uh, in the 1950s, postmodern dance basically posed the point that everyone was a dancer. So the conversation that we're having is really outdated. Um, I turned up at Dartington College of Arts having two broken legs 
and eight years later I stood in Saddlers, Wales, and there were a group of dancers who'd come out of New York who educated me, didn't you, Tim? And, and, and actually, everyone can be a dancer, but it is a training and it is a craft, and we're not all Ben Eel. Um, some of the best work I've ever seen has challenged everything about me as a human being, but I didn't really know it at the time. So let's not dumb down arts. Let's kind of explode our imaginations into levels of brilliance, excellence, impurity, vileness, and everything it is to be a human being. And let's just kind of be beautiful in all our kind of horrendous ways. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes, uh, oh, we outmoded. Joseph Boyce had a near-death experience, Drew. He was also in an incredible moment in time where people were just killing each other. And um, he changed his, it changed his view, he changed his world view. And, and our artists here, to be the glue, as Mark Murphy said, to be the DNA, and that in a way we could kind of given the tools which might be money and time and space, even at approaching 50, that in a way we have, a, we have an insight to what it is to be a human being to kind of help us all move forward from a point of liminality. Because we're still in postmodernism, so let's move on. But how do we move on? And give it to the artists. Don't just invite us to come along with 50 artists, that's nice. But give us a job to change the state of the arts conference. Thanks very much. I think uh, I've got a couple of people over here, but Gavin was saying at the beginning, when, particularly when he's talking about excellence, and it's a range of things that are counterposed that, that, as if they are either ors when they're not actually uh, either ors. So that uh, excellence isn't the opposite of participation. That wasn't, wasn't the terminology, but it's pretty, uh, the theme was there. Just, I, I've thought really about a uh, notion of, uh, of two thoughts about excellence. I have uh, a regular discussion with the uh, director of the Manchester International uh, Festival, and which we, we fund and say, if it, if it isn't any good, there's no point in us funding it. Uh, we may as well give you no, nothing and do nothing. Unless, it, unless it's going to be good, there is, no, uh, there, is, there is no point. And I suppose contrast with that is I, I could write a symphony. Uh, I could write a symphony. I'm, I'm, musically, I have no talent whatsoever. Uh, I know what the notes look like. I know how they appear on a page. This is a bit Eric Morecambe, I know. Um, I, can, I can learn the structures because actually the structures of symphonies are relatively, uh, relatively straightforward. I can write a symphony. Unless I was extremely lucky indeed, it would be absolute rubbish. Uh, unless I was extremely lucky. And I think there is a role within, as, as well as make people making people, doing people, participating, I think there is something around uh, excellence uh, as well. Excellence, it's about aspiration, it's what you aim, aim to do, it is uh, life enhancing. So I, I don't think uh, we should dismiss excellence for some form of mass artistic mediocrity. I think excellence has a place. Uh, down here at the front. Hello, um, I'm Gilly. I make and do dance. It's an art form, you know. Uh, I have lots of things to say, so I'm hoping it's not going to explode, and I've tried to sort of join it together in my head a bit. Um, I find it really kind of silly that we're saying that it's art in a changing society because 
society is always changing and sometimes it's a little bit slower and sometimes it's a bit quicker and it feels a bit quicker now. So um, I guess I, I think it's a bit weirdly framed. Um, I, I think that we are all creative and I really hate this art are special because uh, artists are special because they're creative because my mum's a social worker and she's really creative in her job. My dad works in computing and he's really creative. But having said that, I do think doing art is a different thing to doing other things as a profession. Just as if my best friend's relationship is breaking down, I'm going to look after her child, but that doesn't make me a childcare professional. Or if I take my granddad to do his shopping, it doesn't mean I'm a carer. Or if I drive my brother somewhere, it doesn't make me a taxi driver. People who choose to do art choose to do a separate thing called art. Just as someone who, who chooses to do social work chooses to do a separate thing called social work. And uh, those things are valuable to separate in those ways. And it's also impossible to reverse it because we're here now, so we're not going to go back somewhere else when those words weren't invented. Just like we're not going to go back if we don't like computers to a time where there were no computers. So, I think that artists and art can affect society in lots of different ways. And sometimes, uh, if I do a participatory project and I want to work with people who have been identified as uh, potentially benefiting from engaging in the practice that I work in, I might want to see numbers against those outputs. I might want to know that five of those people then went on to do A-levels instead of not. That, that might be one way in which uh, arts and society can relate to one another. In, in other ways, uh, on the other hand, I think it's, it's useful that art is in some ways separate to and uh, parallel to um, other practices in our lives. So I appreciate the fact that art is semi-independent from other practices because it means that we can do things differently. Nobody is dependent on me the same way as someone is dependent on a bus driver to get to work the next day. That means I have a certain amount of freedom about how I work, who I work with, the models through which I, I do my life. And by producing those new models, I, I and my colleagues can change how other people operate in their fields. That's not so easy to quantify. That's not easy, so easy to say, at the end of this six-week project, I will have changed how the world functions. We, ca we can't say that. that. That's totally impossible. But there are some... Yeah, I know, but you've spoken a lot, so, and I'm also here, so yeah, I'd like yeah. to speak too. Um, yeah, but there's somebody behind you also wants I, to speak. I'm, okay. I'm aware of that. I've waited. Um, what I'd like to say is that there might be ways in which we can think about the relationship between ourselves and society in, in a different way. For example, I would like uh, more people in our country to participate in, in our democracy. The way I can do that is by going to something analogous and I try and participate in our state-funded organisations, arts organisations, in a different way. So I think there are ways to do things that we can't put our finger on but that will change the world. Okay, thanks. Uh, table behind. I'm Jackie Rowe. I'm um, a poet, which some people don't regard as being an artist, um, including some poets don't regard themselves as being an artist, um, from the West Midlands. 
One of the huge aspects of social change that we're going through is an ageing population, which has been mentioned, um, and activity, arts activities for people, well, and any activities actually, sports activities as well, for older people often start at the age of 50. Um, whereas, and I actually work, I've actually worked with people um, of over 100 in work that I do with, with, with um, people with dementia. So the, the age group for, for older people is actually a huge, it's huge than all the other activities, all the age groups put together. Um, and I fit into it myself, but I also work with people twice my age who fit into it. So it's a massive group that's often overlooked, I think. Um, Gavin mentioned at the start the, the health aspect of working with the arts, of people participating in the arts, um, which is significant. I work making poetry um, with people with people with dementia in care homes. I'm working in a psychiatric unit as a, as a hospital, um, an Alzheimer's group, all sorts of things like that, various different, different um, uh, situations in which I come across people like this in, in a project that's funded by the courtyard in Hereford. One of the things that resonated with me from Robert Wilson's talk last night was when he mentioned Christopher spontaneously saying this wonderful line about the smooth brain and about how astounded he was. One of the absolute joys of the work that I do is hearing that sort of thing very often from people with dementia. The way we, we work, there are three poets working on this project, um, is that we listen. Basically, what we do is listen and write down what people say. Um, and with minimal intervention, shape that into a poem, which is then theirs to have, or sometimes to be published if they choose that, or you know, to be read to other people, to be shared. Um, and as I say, one of the most amazing things is to hear these people speaking poetry, not consciously, actually, not in the sense of saying, you know, you're going you're to make a poem like one you've read, but just that the language that comes out is actually, is actually um, it's figurative, it's, it's got music in it. People don't always do reminiscence. Actually, people assume that, that people with dementia will always do reminiscence. Actually, they don't. They talk about their, con- their condition. They talk about... Um, Something they've just something they're watching going on at that moment. They talk about sex. They talk about all sorts of things. But another aspect of this is that, with their permission, the work is sometimes published, and we published a book of, of the first phase of this project, which has actually gone all around the world. Um, and people's view of people with dementia has been changed by that. So the value to them of their art is not just in that participation is good and it's good for health reasons. It's also changing people's view of what what people with dementia are like, and certainly in in the care homes as well. Um, The support staff are saying, I never believed she'd say something like that. Like like Christopher's parents said to Robert Wilson, we didn't think he'd speak like that. People, people read what have been, what's been written and they say, I never believed that, that this woman would say something like this. You know, she, she barely says anything else. She barely says more than you know, a couple of words about you know, how she is today. Um, and I think that's really, really significant. I think it's a, it's a significant aspect of what we do, is that actually it improves the, the, or it changes people's view of people through the arts and through what they produce. Um, sometimes, because of the nature of what I do, People don't actually live to see their work produced, their work published. There's, I had a wonderful poem by a lady, a lady called Winsome, um, who talked about her, her poor sights in very metaphorical terms, and it was published. And by the time it was published, she'd actually died, but she'd left that behind. And in all of their lives, m- m- many of these people, and a lot of them are women, because that's the, that's the, demo- that's the demographics of that of, um, of people in care homes is that, there is that the majority of them are women 
have not really been listened to very much, but suddenly, in their 80s and 90s, somebody's listening to them, and there's actually a record of what they say. And I think that's hugely significant. Thanks. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes. Is there anybody really bursting? We've got somebody bursting down in the front. But so we've only got a couple of minutes, so they, these have to be <coughs> rapid explosions now. Uh, good afternoon. Dan Eastman from Fire Station Arts and Culture. Um, my feeling is that if there's a, a question in the room, what is the role of the artist in a changing society, <clears throat> then the answer surely is to change with it. But we're not very good at that. Um, certainly in, in, in recent years, we haven't been very good at that. Um, we have spaces, we have organisations, we have the Arts Council, we have all these institutions which allow us to change a little bit within those structures but make it very difficult to make the real fundamental changes we need to make if we're to be true to our uh, provocations about wanting to be more democratic and more progressive um, my sense, uh, listening to, to everyone talking around the room, and, and long beforehand, in fact, is that we have a real identity crisis because we talk about wanting to change, but then we make our case uh, as being a special case in society which needs funding because what we do is so important, but we find it very difficult to justify that anymore. Um, I think the end result is that actually we're all very lost uh, we don't know what we want to do. <clears throat> we don't know why we think people should think what we do is important. But actually that's quite a good thing, because nor does anybody else. None of us know anymore what it is that we're trying to do. Things are changing so quickly. There are so many opportunities and so many options. We don't know, and we are lost. And the best thing that we can do at the end of today would be to put up our hands collectively and say, actually we are lost, and we don't know what we're doing at the minute, but bear with us, we'll probably work it out. Go straight, straight behind. Behind. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm glad I'm following that, that response because it gave me a bit of encouragement because I thought about the theme of this, an artist in a changing society. And when I was thinking about sessions, I was thinking, well, hopefully we're going to cover that artists want to improve society, that they want to shape society and make it a better place. And a lot of what I'm hearing seems to be that artists are disconnected from society, that there is very little positive intervention that happens. And I get annoyed when people say, artists see things differently, because I do a lot of research and producing work within communities, and actually I come across an awful lot of bigoted artists who don't see things differently. And I talk to a lot of people in communities who see things incredibly innovatively. And you just think, we mustn't assume things about artists and how they see things differently and how they're going to change the world for the better and how they're going to make people think differently and see differently. Those are assumptions, and we have to be careful of those. Okay. I'm going to uh, ask Gavin Astro if they've got sort of 30 seconds of for their summing up on this. In any order you like, who's going to go first? Um, Gavin. My mum, who wouldn't describe herself as an artist, um, when I came home as a 12-year-old with my shirt untucked, said, um, Gavin, tuck in your shirt. And I came home the next day, and I hadn't tucked in my shirt. And she said... Um, Gavin, tuck in your shirt, I'm going to do something about it. And I came home the next day and I still had my shirt untucked and she didn't say anything and I assumed I'd worn her down. And I got up the next day and she'd sewn fully lace to the bottom of all my shirt tails. 
And, and it feels like we're at that moment where we might have to think differently about the way in which we solve some of the problems. Yeah. I can't follow that. <laughs> well, my mum sewed... Um, no, I, I, think, um, I think we are facing huge structural problems and there's lots of reasons to be despondent. I'm still positive despite that and I am hearing lots of positive people out there. I think at the root of this, and I, I haven't got an answer for some of those really intelligent questions, but there is a contradiction here. Because I think on, on the one level, we would all embrace the idea of democratising, both seeking to help democratise society at large and democratising the arts. And there's a certain, for me, there is something that feels out of time of the artist being someone who can stand in this ivory tower outside society, and yet it's precisely by supporting people, by giving them that room to grow, that we do support amazing art. And I don't think anyone's got a solution to that, and that's what we're hearing play out. Well, th thanks very much, everybody, for their contri uh, contributions. Well, uh, draw, it, draw it to an end. So I'm, I'm, I'm not an artist. I, uh, I think artists are, uh, have an important role to play. But there are a couple of things that came out of this for me for, for the, after the afternoon session, because all we have to do in this room is think about problems. Some people this afternoon have to then think about uh, solutions. I'm really pleased that Althea over there has got a report back on it, so I don't have to do that uh, uh, either. But... Uh, uh, one was, uh, if, if it's a change in society, change with it. And I think the other theme was uh, the role of artists in changing the society. So it's, uh, I think those, those two things. Uh, so in, in what is my area of activity, the area of politics, I, I come across people in communities, I come across people who are involved in environmental groups, I come across people like Drew in Manchester who are involved in arts, digital and a whole range of uh, other stuff and I come across in all sorts of areas vast numbers of people who actually are working in a whole range of different ways to, I think as Gavin said, make the world a better, uh, make the world a, a, a better place. And, I think if there is a task for the group in the afternoon, it's really to think about how do uh, artists make sure that they are part of that huge mix of people from all sorts of different backgrounds with a whole range of different areas of expertise, whole range of different life experiences who are working to make the, uh, make the world a, a better place. And if we get an answer to that, I think we really would have achieved something this afternoon. So thanks very much, everybody, for attending this morning, and thank you to our two speakers. introduce our, our two speakers in just a moment but what I thought I would do is just sort of set the context a bit and of course um, we've all been in morning sessions today and we know that the morning sessions are supposed to be about airing issues and then this afternoon session is about trying to tie those down we'll see how that works because of course most of us weren't in the morning session and so um, I think we're going to have to sort of go back a little bit before we can before we can come uh, forward so I, I'm going to sort of um, hand over to our speakers in, in a little while and then we'll, we'll have um, a little bit of discussion. But the sorts of questions, I think, which uh, uh, this topic um, tries to, to look at is, I mean, clearly, what is the role of the artist in a changing society? And, and you sort of, those of you who were in that last session will have heard the feedback that I gave about what was in the, the first session. So what is that role of the artist in a changing society? Uh, what does an increasingly culturally diverse society mean for the arts and indeed for artists? 
Um, how has societal change, including increased migration, consequent access to wider cultural influences, influenced artists and arts practice? Are there opportunities for artists to contribute towards society that aren't currently being exploited? Are there sort of things that we could be doing more of? And I suppose another question that uh, we might want to touch on, but you know, we can take this where we want to take it, is does the public see artists as having a role to play in a changing society? How are artists valued? So those are perhaps some of the questions that we may want to uh, touch to touch upon. Um, I'm not going to, because of, they're short of time, so I'm going to assume that you were in that session and you heard what I said about what came out of the, the session this morning, so that there were issues about, well, you know, is the question sort of pertinent, uh, the role of the artist in a civil, uh, civic society, uh, and so on. But I want to uh, hear what our two speakers have to say, so I'm going to move on to, to them, and we're going to start with Neville Gaby. And Neville, Neville is an artist who was born in South Africa. His previous projects include... I have read your biography. Um, they include a four-month residency at uh, Halley Research Station in the Antarctica. I, I had to tell the group that. Um, and three years as an artist-in-residence on a building site in Bristol. And he's currently the Olympic Delivery Authority artist-in-residence at the Olympic Park. Uh, Neville's going to go first. And then we're going to hear from Aida El Tori. And Aida is an independent creator and director of the Finding Projects Association. She created the 2011 Egyptian Pavilion of the 54th International um, uh, Venice Biennale. And her past work includes creating the film program at Manifesta 8 and the video collective Contemporary Arab Video Encounter. And Aida independently produced a number of international projects with artists and cultural practitioners from the Middle East and Europe. Um, Neville's, Neville's presentation is going to be more based on work uh, in this country. Aida will be talking more about work um, uh, overseas. And I'm hoping that from both of those very different presentations, we'll be able to garner some themes that will help us with that question about what's the role of the artist in a changing society. So with that, Neville. Thank you. Um, I'm afraid I'm not going to talk about Antarctica at all. I'm Aww. sorry to disappoint you, but <laughs> I think what I am going to talk about sort of fairly unashamedly is my own practice as an artist. And I think, I mean, the subject that we're talking about is so huge. I don't know that um, there's a vast amount of answers I can give you, but um, I think all I can really uh, base anything on is my own experience as a practitioner. And I really want to start off by referencing three projects, but one in particular, which is some years ago, but which was really seminal in terms of my own practice as an artist. Uh, in 1999, I initiated a project in Liverpool, uh, which I then ran for five years with another artist, Leo Fitzmaurice, uh, in a tower block about Lenosa Close in the north part of the city, which was uh, due for demolition. Um, I think I was really fascinated by the buildings. I mean, there was a physical change going on. It's a very difficult uh, context and environment. But uh, the buildings were half full or half empty, uh, mainly with elderly residents. Um, and I, I was just quite fascinated by this place and space. And I, I guess I wanted to use my practice as a way of exploring it and thinking about some of those issues. Um, over a period of five years I lived in that building, we had something like 25 artists, writers, musicians coming and living and working with uh, the residents. I mean, there's um, uh, some of them, actually, some who've become uh, quite successful since. But uh, Will Self, uh, George Shaw, um, 
uh, Lothargott and Marcus Coates are just some of the artists who came and worked uh, in the project. When I began it again in 99, there was very little funding. We got some funding at the time from a Year of the Artist scheme. And again, I think that was really, really important because I think that, uh, and again, it's a wider issue, but I think that actually that bit of seed funding uh, for um, artists to begin something is absolutely vital and critical. And it gave us the opportunity really to to develop a project uh, independently, um, but within a context. Um, I think it was also really important for that project that we had artists of all age and all experience, and it was a really important part of the process. And also, I guess, to sustain a project like that really successfully, we had to work very, very closely with with the residents. I mean, I think, as I said, I lived in the block for five years. Um, The residents were involved in all aspects of the project, from selecting the artists to opening the tower block periodically um, to interviewing Will Self on a... Uh, a live chat show. So, I mean, I think that that relationship was critical. And um, I suppose why it's remained a seminal project for me was I I stepped outside the comfort zone, I guess, of, of, of working in a studio. And I began to understand that actually in all sorts of places and spaces, there is an incredible enthusiasm for, for, for art and for artists, as long as it's approached in the right kind of way. Um, as long as it's genuine, as long as it's sustained, as long as it's built with a relationship of trust. And I think that, that was a really key thing to understand. Um, again, from a very personal perspective, I think um, working that closely within a community gave me a real sense of who, um, I, I, I don't really like the word audience, but, but who the people were um, that the work was, was touching, uh, what their response was to it. And it gave me a much, much greater sense of my own place, my own understanding, um, and how I wanted to take my work forward. Uh, and the, one of the other things which I think was also really important was, um, as I said, over the five years, we had 25 artists and writers living and working in the block. Um, I began to understand you know, actually the effectiveness of artists working together, whether it was... Uh, collaboratively on a, on, on a single piece of work or collectively in response to one sort of place. Um, and I think those are things that have, have really sustained a lot of the work that I've done since. And, of course, as I said, I think that what was fundamental to even getting it off the ground was um, that ACE funding at the time. Um, more recently, I spent um, three years, so from 2006 to 2009, working as an artist in residence on a building site in Bristol. So um, there's a 37-acre city centre site. Um, had 3,000 builders on there and on any one day working on the site. Uh, 62 nationalities. So an incredibly diverse uh, group of uh, site staff. Um, it's the first time I'd worked on a project which was entirely privately funded by a large two large corporate companies, Land Securities and Hammerson. Uh, and I have to say that initially I was really, un- I had a lot of anxiety about what it means to work in that kind of context. But I felt that as an artist it was important to get in there and at least understand that. Um, I-, I guess also when I first started there was a sense of um, perhaps sort of uh, blind naivety that actually, you know, as an artist I could pitch up on this building site and everything would be wonderful. And I think the moment you walk through those gates, you realise that wherever you stood, you were in somebody's way. It was a really intense, busy, dirty, noisy place. 
Um, but there was a moment, there was one day when I walked past this side canteen in the middle of it, and I just heard this uh, woman singing, and it seemed to cut through everything I was looking and seeing. There's um, was a, a woman in the staff from Bulgaria, a woman called Eva. She was just singing a song for, uh, that she knew in Bulgarian. Uh, and it gave me suddenly a very different perspective of who the people were on this site. Uh, I think when you're all wearing high-vis jackets, 3,000 guys are just 3,000 guys. You, you, you don't really... You become almost anonymous and invisible, and suddenly I saw the person. Uh, and I think that was a really revealing moment. And as a result of that, I developed a project where I invited, um, well, any builders on the site. I recorded them singing songs in a range of different languages, I think about 25 or 30. And I then approached the City of Bristol Choir, a very um, typical white, mainly middle-class choir, and said, I'd really like to do a project between the two um, groups of people. So the, the choir actually worked really closely with the builders. Uh, they learnt the songs in 15 different languages. And then we brought the entire choir back onto the building site. So that's them in the corner um, performing to... Uh, sorry, I should go back. Performing to the building site. So the whole site was mic'd up with speakers. And in a sense, it was a, it was a way of saying thank you. It was a way of building a kind of bridge between these very, very dif- disparate communities. Um, in a very similar vein, I did another piece uh, based around food on the site, so absolutely anyone could suggest a meal, a recipe, and we've got professional chefs to cook these meals and bring them back onto the site. So sometimes they were for a group of eight people, sometimes they were for 250. Um, why that, I really wanted to show you that was, um, as a part of that, we produced a lot of publications, this being one. And for me, again, that's, it, what was really important about that was... Um, I felt that the the publication is the work. I felt that it was really important that I did something where everyone who participated could effectively have, take, own the work. So, um, you know, these were distributed building site staff. They were sent back home. They could be found everywhere. But it was that idea, again, about breaking that chain of artist gallery and trying to find another way of putting art into kind of a public domain, which I think is really, again quite central to my practice. Um, I mentioned quickly that I, I tend to like working with lots of other artists, and again in Bristol, I actually applied for um, some Arts Council funding uh, for two reasons. One, I felt that actually to have the backing of public funding gave me a degree of autonomy. I wasn't just going to be completely board-controlled so, you know, by this uh, corporate clients, so that actually as an artist in that situation, it was absolutely critical that I had an, um, a critical, objective, distanced voice. And I think by having the, su- the support funding of the Arts Council, it really uh, reinforced that position. Um, I also wanted to bring other voices into that space, so I commissioned, using that money, uh, seven other artists. These are examples of some. So uh, Leo Fitzmaurice, uh, Dryden Goodwin, a French artist, Marie-Jean Hoffner, uh, an Afro-Caribbean uh, writer, Donna Daly-Clark, uh, and a, another artist, Dan Fischowski, who's from Romania, who was a very political artist. He ran an underground newspaper during Ceausescu's era, and I just wanted that kind of critical um, voice in, in the mix. And I think, I mean, it's very difficult to be an uh, to work in that kind of corporate situation, but I think actually it's also vital and important that an artist does put themselves in those places. Um, more recently, and I'm only going to talk about one project very briefly, um, 
Uh, I was commissioned to be Artston Residence uh, for the Olympic Delivery Authority um, during the construction of the Olympic Park. Um, so I was there for, eight, for 18 months, finished mid-January, so the residency part has only just been completed. Uh, again, I was really wanted to put myself in that, that situation, begin to understand how you make sense of that place. Um, and, and when I first started, I was given this... Um, visualization of the north part of the park, that top image. Um, so you can see a windmill and a sort of funny white building, which is a velodrome. Um, and people talking about this being the people, the new people's park. Um, and it just struck a chord when I saw this picture. It reminded me very strongly of the Surar bathers, which hangs in the National Gallery. I mean, that's, that's in part to do with the similarity of the kind of physical landscape. So the relationship of the river to the, to the, uh, to the bank the fact that there's a bridge in almost the exact place. Um, but then there were other really interesting things. Where there's a factory in the Syrah, um, there's now a velodrome. Uh, and I was really interested that actually that Syrah painting, when it was painted, it doesn't look like it now, looking back 120, 30 years, was a really political painting in the sense that um, Syrah was one of the first artists really truly to embrace the, the French Revolution. Um, so he was painting a working-class community in an urban setting, uh, sus sustained, I guess, by the factories in the background, that new kind of um, driver of an urban economy. And I was really interested in that in relation to, to the park now. So, um, you know, who are those people who are... What are the demographics of the park now? Um, the fact that actually we're using sport as a means of regenerating communities. So what I did is I set it up and recreated it as a photographic piece on the park, but really trying to use the people who are building and operating that park. So what was um, in the Syrah, an essentially uh, white working-class population is much more populated by the you know, demographics of the area and the people who work on the park. There was only one woman in the Syrah, I hasten to add. There is only one woman in this photograph. Um, but more importantly, what I wanted to do was make sure that that, as a piece of work, had a, was really widely disseminated. Um, so I worked really closely with the Metro newspaper. I wanted it to be in a form which was immediate, which was accessible, which was there for everybody to pick up on the tube in a staff canteen. Um, and I think that, again, was really quite critical for me, is, is where, you place, where you place the work. I, I mean, I, I, I'm going to kind of wind up and finish, but there was one question which was slightly prompted by um, the, the briefing papers which said um, does the public see artists as having a role to play in a changing society it, it kind of reminded me and I don't, I don't embrace all the words of this quote but there's a, there's a Henry Ford quote um, which said he's supposed to have said if I had asked my customers what they wanted they would have said faster horses um, what, I, what I think was really important is that I actually think the, the artist has a role to be um, to, to kind of draw, to make those imaginative leaps. Uh, for me, I'd like to do that within a context, within a community, and I think that imaginatively that imaginative leap which I make is very much based around working in a very specific uh, context. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Right, let's, let's go straight on, and then we'll pick up the themes of both at the, at the end. So, Aida. Thanks, Neville. Uh, do I click this one? Okay, so um, 
The association I represent is called Finding Projects, and um, it's based between Italy and, uh, and uh, between Florence and Cairo. Um, I'm, uh, I'm Egyptian, Italian, and I'm based in Cairo. I've been, I've been brought up there my entire life, and uh, I live there currently, um, and I lived there during the revolution, and this is what I'm going to sort of focus on right now as in the artist's role in the society as it changed. Um, so this is just some information about, about finding projects, um, the kind of work that I had done, which uh, uh, Althea had already introduced. Um, now, the aim, the aim behind the association is to build projects in site-specific areas or build projects around issues that are happening immediately at that time. When I initiated this project, it was in um, March 2011. The, uh, the um, uprising had happened January 25th, 2011. Mm -hmm. And um, in this image, we have an artist called Nirmin Hammam. She's Egyptian. She went down to the streets every day and photographed the army men that had suddenly been in the streets of, of Cairo, which is an image that no Egyptian would have ever imagined seeing except uh, in 1967, which was the Arab-Israeli War. Um, so the image of seeing army tanks and army men standing amongst citizens was a really, really shocking image and stunning image to have, especially when you don't know whose side they're taking. So in this image, um, it's just a, a primary example She's created this beautification of, of the circumstance, of what's going on. Typically, if you go down and you photograph anything associated to the military, and I'm talking pre-uprising, you would be arrested, your camera would be confiscated, broken in front of you, you would be attacked physically. You would also be you know, either put in jail. It depends on how it is they want to handle you at that time. There would be some sort of punishment uh, associated to it. During the 18-day uprising, no one touched you. You were untouchable. The citizen had the power, had the right to take an image, and no one could touch them. Except, of course, um, when uh, on the Day of Rage, which was the, uh, 18, um, the 28th of January, when uh, a lot of uh, snipers had shot down um, people with cameras, including the artist who I had curated at the Egyptian uh, Pavilion at the Venice Biennale, that's another example of an artist who took his camera, went to the streets, wasn't thinking about this as an art project at all. He was down there to see what is, what is going on, what's happening to his people, and how can he help? How can he be part of it as a citizen? The role changed for the artist during this time. Looking at the images of these uh, army men, they're young, they're innocent, they're playful. Um, they don't look harsh or brutal like they are now, which is the, the true image that we're seeing. And when Nermin made these images, she took maybe 17,000 images and then cleaned up the background, put this beautiful backdrop talking about this illusion of a paradise that doesn't really exist, where we're assuming that they're here to protect us. And then, um, and she created that within two months from, from that period, from the, from the success of those 18 days which today they're happening brutal massacres across the country uh, by the army, of course. It's just about this association of the artist with that, uh, with that militant, with that image of a militant in her country. 
And here's Sama Shebi. She is uh, Iraqi-Palestinian. She uh, left her country maybe at the age of 10 years old, um, currently living in the U.S. They migrated her family. Um, she hasn't quite had the opportunity to live in Iraq or Palestine, but she constantly goes on visits. She currently lives in Arizona as a professor of arts. Um, she's a huge activist, and she was producing this video called the Saura, which means revolution, right before the revolution. And it's a very romanticized, again, image of this idea of a revolution that hasn't yet taken place. If you notice the colors she uses, there's a lot of red, white, and black, um, the elements of the flag uh, of Arabian countries. Here she had taken the news that there were thousands of blackbirds dropping from the sky during New Year's, uh, right before New Year's. There were thousands of blackbirds dying from migration, and she reacted to that idea of a mass movement occurring and then dropping from the sky. So sort of a commemoration to that, and then the revolution happened, the uprising. So it was this association of nature to, to reality. And Ibrahim Saad, he's an Egyptian artist who also took to the streets when the uprising had happened, and um, all the buildings that were harmed during the protests, he had, uh, taken, he had documented them being covered up and then sketching over them to show, to show that he was there and to show that damage was made, that you can't cover up the damage that was done on, on these buildings. This is one of the most important squares in Cairo, other than Tahrir Square, which is the Liberty Square where everyone, where you see all the news covering. This is the one right next to it called the Talat Harb, which is a, uh, a significant historical location that a lot of the uprisings were happening in as well. Very British and French colonialist architecture, um, which is also a, a pre, that was the 52 revolution, that side. And Marwan, he's a Lebanese artist. He had done these works in 2008, and they were called Dictators, Studies for a Monument. And uh, when I asked for these works for the show, uh, show we had done in Italy, he said, no one had ever taken interest since I made these in 2008 until now because of the overthrowing of the dictators. Suddenly everyone loves these works. So it's also this concept of the artist kind of foreseeing or forbearing an idea that might happen or that they would wish it would happen, but it's not yet happening. Adel Abdin, an Iraqi artist who lives in Helsinki, and he, um, he did this piece called Bread of Life, which was done in Cairo, and uh, that was also in 2006, where it was about... Um, we have, of course, uh, part of our tradition is the, the music, uh, the, the tabla, where you beat on, on this instrument, a flat instrument, and uh, he had replaced the instrument with dry bread, and they actually did the performance with the dry bread, which was really interesting because there was a huge, with the economy, with all the problems, he wanted to document this as an Iraqi coming to Egypt for the first time, how he can relate to the culture, to the society. We had asked the artists for this show. Um, this was the first show I do after the Venice Biennale. Um, and, of course, during Venice, we were commemorating an artist who had died for his country, and here, um, we asked them to design their own flag to sort of define what it is, what does it mean to belong to a country that isn't quite yours. So Sama here had done the, uh, in, in red, it says al-shaab, which means the people in Arabic, but it's written in a Franco-Arab Franco text. 
uh, versus the Empire, and she was playing off of this sort of movie movie di- directed poster like sort of Muhammad Ali uh, image um, where she is the fighter she's the one still fighting and she and it's her versus the empire and she represents society and here Karim al-Husseini was a Palestinian artist um, who's also based in Cairo um, his family had uh, they were they're you know the um, if you know Al-Husseini, they're the, the family of Jerusalem, who, of course, were put in exile uh, in 1948. And uh, a lot of the family had moved to Egypt and across the world as well. So he had done this uh, unification of the Arab League, which has never happened. It was an idea that was meant to happen. There is an Arab League, apparently, but it was never united. And here he tried to unite it under the name of Allah, which is the Arabic text on the, above it. which takes me to the Young Artists Coalition. Now, this group formulated in uh, February 2011. They actually had started before that, but this young group are all young artists who took to the streets, of course, the minute the revolution had happened, and they started to paint the streets, and I mean literally paint the, paint the tar, paint the grounds, paint the walls, paint as much as they could to keep people identifying with beauty and color and passion and not to be aggressive. A lot of the, the, the majority of the protesters were not aggressive. So this was something that would continue, that lacking aggression, even though they were being shot at, they were being, um, they were being there were stone throwings, there were all kinds of um, aggressive activities going on. And this group sort of tried to deviate that kind of activity from where they were located in the heart of, the, of Tahrir Square. So here's a little bit about them. Um, there are four young men who had initiated this. Uh, Mustafa Al-Banna, Ibrahim Saad, Amr Amir, and Osama Abdul Menem. And uh, they're all born in 1978, 1979, approximately. They're quite young. Uh, Mustafa's maybe the youngest. He's, I think, about 27 years old. Um, and they all came up with this idea of how can we unite the artists for the sake of the people to help the communities in our country understand that uh, the, the, fight, the fight is meant to improve and the fight is meant to be in the form of painting and a beautification, not in the form of a destruction. So here's one of the images of uh, Ibrahim. When he first took to the street, he would, the cars would stop for him. While as he painted on the street. And this would never happen in Egypt. You would never see this image until the uprising happened. For the first time, the artists realized that they are the community, that they are the people, that the artist is the citizen. And for the first time, also, the citizen has become the artist. If you had uh, followed the stories that were happening, um, all the slogans that the protesters were holding up, they did it themselves. And the slogans were a work of art. What it is they were saying, how it was that they were talking to their president, who they could never dare speak with, uh, the kind of images they were drawing. All this was done by the people, not by artists. So a reverse of role starts to happen, and the artist realizes that he has a role in this society and he should contribute to it. So they decide to do a project. Um, first, I'll show you uh, the, one of the street uh, projects that they had done. This is Tahrir Square. Um, and, of course, they would work on it really late at night where they wouldn't be interrupting any of the protesting going on. And uh, this, this was actually taken from a video. 
and they would finish it in one night. And you had about 45 people working together all at once, and these are all professional artists, all graduates from the Fine Arts College. They needed to feel that collectivity. And then they went off and started a project called The Story of a Wall. And this took place in one of the very impoverished neighborhoods in Cairo, where a lot of the, there were a lot, a lot of crime has happened. So a lot of the thug, thuglery, or the thugs that were accused of not being enforced by the military, they said they came from these neighborhoods, and they would name the neighborhoods. This is one of the neighborhoods that they started out in. It's called Imbaba, and it's one of the old sort of uh, lower, lower class level. You know, it's a little bit impoverished, but the people are good people. They live pretty well. They make, you know, they make ends meet. So they decided to move into this neighborhood upon one of their friends inviting them, and their friend is a writer who lives in this neighborhood. He said, I want you to come, and I want you to show the world what my neighborhood is really, what, it, what does it really look like. So they decided to move into the neighborhood and started to take one main street and paint the walls of the entire street and paint the walls with the stories of the people who live in this area. So by moving in, they started to transform the way it looks. They started to become very inviting. People would want to interact with them. They want to talk with them. and They want to have tea and coffee with them. And they start to have a relationship with the people in the community. So by starting this project, the people, in, uh, the people in Mbeba completely fell in love with the project. Once they understood that there is a fine arts culture happening in Cairo, that it's existed for a long time, that they have a cultural heritage that they need to preserve, um, they started to have more pride about their neighborhood, which almost looks like slum, a slum neighborhood, the, the type of housing. So they transformed it with just a little bit of paint. And all this paint was spent on from their own pocket until they were able to sort of fundraise bits and pieces here and there from, you know, painting companies who would give them, donate some paint. And then uh, for the first time this month, the British Council has uh, donated uh, uh, three months' worth of material for the artists to take it on to, their, to the next street that they're moving into. It completely transforms, and they don't go above the first floor, above the ground floor of the of the neighborhoods. They time, okay. So this is the writer, Osama uh, Abdelmenam, who lives in this neighborhood. He's the one who invited them. So they they put him in that image. They wanted to honor the people in the neighborhood. And, of course, involve kids in running workshops and developing it. And since then, there actually became a very protective ground for these people. Unlike graffiti art, which eventually becomes wiped over, no one can come in and wipe this because they don't work at night. They don't, they don't hide from anyone. They work in the middle of the day on weekends with the people in the community, and the community are the protectors of the works that are done. So this entire street was painted. This was another one. So this is a new development that's happening in Cairo right now. Um, they're working on another area called uh, Fagala in Cairo, which is a very historical site of uh, Christian heritage. Um, and they want to show the unity of Islamic and, uh, Islamic and Christian uh, heritage, that they're united, not divided. So this is a very big part of what these artists are doing right now. And they're called the Young Artists Coalition because they're a group of young artists who 
didn't have a voice before until the uprising had happened and that now this is giving them a voice to work with the communities they live in. Thank you. So, I mean, two very different contexts, two very different responses in terms of what's the role of the artist in a change in society. And I, I mean, I, I picked up I mean, definitely some common themes and level from yours that that sense of um, the artist working very closely with residents was something that you, you emphasised um, a, a, a lot. Um, and also the artists working together, so a sense of, of collaboration that, that uh, came out of your, present, of your presentations. I also, I mean, I thought that was fantastic. So the, those of you can't see that this is called the, the Canteen, a building site cookbook. So the yes, sense of, a, of an output, so a sort of a product, a, the, some sort of a, a symbol, if you like, of, of the work that uh, came out of, um, of that sort of uh, collaboration with, uh, with, uh, with the communities. Um, and you finished off by talking about um, how you sort of made the art relevant and accessible and also a role of the artist to make uh, an imaginative leap. And then Aida, I mean, I, I picked up from what you were talking about. I mean, this was, sort of, this was about a real sort of situation of, of conflict, revolution, risk and actually sort of danger to, um, the, to, to the artists. Uh, but sort of very clear issues there about sort of art as a part of social change and a question about whether the artist was reflecting social change or contributing to social change. And you talked about, you used the word for seeing, for seeing social change. You also talked about collaboration across artists, so there were sort of clear themes about that. You talked about the citizen as artist, and you talked about the, the relationship with people in the community, again, sort of picking up themes level that were, that were in your, um, uh, your presentations. So, I mean, those are just some of the things that I heard, and I wondered what... We all heard, and, and if there are any questions sort of directly to uh, Neville and Aida, just uh, in terms of uh, their experiences. And then I think we'll open it out and say, well, okay, so what does this all mean in terms of what we think is the role of the artist in a change of society in the UK? So, any questions? And say... There's a, wait, 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 wait for the mic and tell us who you are, Peter. Yes, uh, Peter Phillips, I'm on the National Council of Arts Council England, but uh, in this context, I'm chairman of Birmingham Opera. Um, now, I just wonder, in terms of, of your um, presentation, Aida, it came up very clearly what you were doing with the community, how they were working, etc., and coming together. In your own level, I just wonder how you approached it. Did you find any sort of um, uh, barriers to inclusion, whether those barriers were real or perceived, and very often they're perceived? Did you go, when you approached your, the block of flats, the first project, were you um, going out to them and getting the community together, or did you just get on with what you were doing and see if people got engaged with it, or did you approach them individually? I think the thing that I've learned which is most critical to make things a success is really about building a relationship of trust, and yeah. it's really about an investment of time. And I think when we started in Liverpool, for example, um, Firstly, we were very, very careful about the first artists who came, became involved in the project, but then a lot of the time we spent, we were in the blocks with the residents before we even talked about art. It was much more about them understanding who we were and we were understanding who they, they were. And I think, as I said, I lived in the building for five years. It was really a, a, it was a growing relationship um, and a partnership, I think, between um, the artists and that community. And I think that actually 
investing that amount of, of time to build up a relationship is critical and that's been true of all the projects I did, including three years on a building site or even 18 months. So, in, so the, in, the, in the first case, it was building up individual relationships more. It is. With I the building site, was it more taking them, as you illustrated, as a well, group? Well, I think, you know, it's a very difficult uh, uh, space for there to be any kind of interface. And a lot of that happened, for example, in and around a canteen when yeah, people have yeah, time yeah. to sit and to talk. Uh, and I think as an artist working in that situation, you have to be the, 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 the person who makes that first step, that leap, and who's willing to change your practice or your approach to, to kind of work in any given situation. And I think that, that, that flexibility is, is absolutely critical, yeah. in fact. Um, I think even in terms of the output of my work, I've realised that, you know, although historically I studied sculpture, actually my means, whether it's sculpture, a film, a photographic piece, is really also got to be determined by the situation, the people and the place. So I, I guess I see what I do as having to be flexible to accommodate th those kind of yeah. specific contexts. And I think if that we like you your used question. to adapt to what the needs of the community were. Absolutely. The professional production, but using the community, yeah. first of all started off with rehearsal saying three strikes and you're out if you don't turn <laughs> up and then realised we couldn't do it like that mm. we had to adapt to the way they were prepared mm. to come and work with us mm. I mean I think that the, the Olympics sorry is a very different situation because you know you've, you've got a, a, a huge site staff but you've also got this, this massive organisation the ODA and the interface between something which is on the top of a tower in Canary Wharf and guys on the ground is, is a much much harder and very political context to to make sense of, but you know, I think. <laughs> Any other immediate c uh, comments? So I've got one over there and, and one here. Let's go number one over here first. And in fact, I think we'll take both of them at this. So we'll take them. Okay, on, uh, this is a question. Um, I'm Judith Hills. I'm from University of Sunderland, but I'm also project director for Artworks Northeast, which is about artist training. And I'm just wondering. I was fascinated when you talked about the 25 artists working on that project. To what extent was that a training ground for less experienced artists? Or to what extent were all of the artists that you brought in people who you knew would respond immediately to that? We, we selected artists... Um, I mean, it was an open call for selection as well as people we invited. We didn't want artists who necessarily worked in that situation, but artists we thought would be interesting. We were really clear, both Leo and I, that we needed people who were... Um, quite experienced and people who are incredibly young. In fact, one of the youngest artists who came was uh, from your neck of the woods, Catherine Batola, and I think it was her first project as a graduate, actually. Um, but then there was also Will Self, Bill Drummond, and other quite established artists in the, in, in the building. And I think it was, it, it was a learning experience, and I think the person who learned most was perhaps me. And I think where I really learned was actually from, from the residents and the community and seeing that actually as a collective of artists we were much stronger than as an individual. Um, so I think hmm, it, was, it was critical for me, but I hope it also kind of w was a space in which we could kind of nurture uh, really kind of artists at real grassroots level. And this comes back again to funding and, and actually how important it is for... For, for, for Arts Council England to be funding really sort of grassroots, you know, organisations and artists. Take risks. Well, that's right, so it could also be part of the bank. Artists could also 
be in there as part of their training, which actually then wouldn't mm. require funding. It would just require collaboration yeah. with um, organisations who were, you know, universities, colleges, mm. who were looking for that kind of opportunity um, for the students on their arts programmes. Mm. It seems that if we don't collaborate in that way, then there's a lot of missed opportunities. Well, I, I guess, um, sorry, I'm going to dominate Phil, but I guess things have broken down a little bit in the sense that it's not that many years ago that lots of practising artists were also visiting lecturers in colleges and in schools, and I think with the changing in funding, that relationship has really broken down a lot. Um, I mean, from my own personal experience, I used to be a visiting lecturer all, all over the place, and I noticed that's vanished, and I think that's a lot to do with funding. So that relationship has largely broken down. Right, I'm going to take two comments. So first of all, table at the front, and then over there. So this one first. Uh, Simon Thirsk, uh, founder, chairman of Blood Axe Books, poetry publisher, and also novelist. Uh, can I ask both of you uh, about what you see as the value of your work? And is it directed at the communities in which you work with a view to getting members of those communities to engage with art? Or is it about producing, or both perhaps, or is it about creating art which is, of, uh, which is saying something of national and international importance uh, and perhaps pushing forward the boundaries of what art can do? And when you're doing it, when you're engaged in the project, do you have a sense of a strain within you of, try, of striving to try and achieve those ends? Okay, hold, hold, hold that question. I'm going to take the second one. So what's the value of your work? Is it a directed at engaging communities? Is it about creating art? And is there a sort of strain and tension between those two? What's yours? Um, Boston Williams, poet and MC. Um, what I've noticed from both of your works is that um, you involve a lot of the community um, and I think art recently has been um, kind of separated from its um, political ties and its social meanings and I just want to get your opinions on how art is being used currently um, to talk about world current affairs such as Occupy London Stock Exchange Occupy Wall Street and even the riots Okay, and then what's, what's the, political, the, the political value of, of art? Okay me? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to do the first um, one first? Yes, if you don't mind. So, yeah. it was, um, Simon, it was, what's, what's the value of your work? So, are you thinking, when you're doing your work, is it, or the artists that you were talking about, is it about engaging the community? So, the, the, the purpose is about the communities, or is it about creating the art? And do you find, or do you think the artists are then finding a, a tension between those two? For, for me, it's very personal. Like, I'm, I'm talking out of a personal... Like, my response will be personal, not professional, in the sense of um, the most important thing for me is the most important value is that at the end of the day, the artist becomes valued in the eyes of the community, in the eyes of his family, in the eyes of his colleagues. He becomes of weight towards everybody because he came to me to develop something that he didn't think he could achieve unless he got the help he needs. That's the most important thing. Whether it reached, you know, the stars or whether it reached, you know, down the street, the most important thing is that he was able to achieve it. 
um, and it definitely causes a lot of strain because you don't know how much they're expecting from you, regardless of how many times you talk about it. They always, you know, pat you on the back and they say, you know, it doesn't matter even if we like like what I just said, even if we just, you know, satisfy something here, that's fine. But you're always looking for that higher goal. Um, taking the changing room as an example, it was a, it, it, my work is non-commercial, but it does tend to have a commercial value because we want to give the artist value for their work. If someone develops an interest to buy this work, it has to be a limited edition, it has to be something that has a time and place, so it wouldn't be a, a, a commercial mass distributed piece. And um, for us not to lose the artist in the success of their sales versus them not selling at all, but making a huge statement. For me, it's more valuable to make the statement than to sell. I guess, you know, as an artist, I want to do the best possible work I can, so I'm always trying to push boundaries in terms of my own practice. Um, but I also think that actually there's a really interesting moment right now where actually art could, the direction of what we're doing in art could, could, could shift and could shift in a really positive way. And I, I suppose I'm really looking for... I'm really interested in finding means of distributing art which is accessible, which is why I come back to the independent, which is cheap, which is um, available to all. And I really think there's a moment actually to step back from the commercialism in the direction in which art finds itself. Um, and so I, I, I suppose in that sense I feel I'm putting myself out on a limb. And I think if there's a, if there's a problem with that is I think that... Um, don't necessarily get the kind of critical discourse or debate around that area of practice which I think it ought to have. And then the second question, and it, if I can paraphrase, it was the extent to which art is engaged with or disengaged with politics, the political endeavour. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you gave examples like Wall Street and London uh, Stock Exchange. Um, for me to parallel with that, I have the revolution to look at. And with the works that came out, they were extremely powerful. And I don't mean like the typical fo photographic, oh, I was there and I saw this, but more like I had a physical and mental reaction to what was going on in front of my eyes, the brutality, and I needed to tell it to the world. Um, and those who typically worked in photography broke their photography skills and worked into digital media. Um, digital media became a very important element from the day that the uprising had happened on the 25th all the way down to today. So I have to say that the artists play an extremely important role in criticizing politics, criticizing it like crazy, constantly criticizing it, whether when they wake up in the morning or when they meet their friends at the coffee shop or when they actually make art. The artists who spent those 18 days in that square during the beginning of the uprising, they did not produce one work of art during those 18 days. They couldn't. They didn't have anything to say. They were in shock, and they wanted to do something, or they wanted to say something for the people, not for themselves. They didn't want to say, I am an artist and I am saying this. So it took them maybe two, three months to actually absorb and study and understand what has just happened to them, and what do they have to say on behalf of their community, not on behalf of themselves anymore. And that was a huge change from what I've seen um, I guess in a sense we're, we're very lucky that we're not living in those kinds of extremes of a kind of political environment but I think uh, 
everything we do as people is in a sense as a kind of political act and where we choose to place our art or make our work um, is a kind of is a kind of political act and a political decision and I think um, we're all responsible for, for that to some extent and um, yes you know I said we're lucky we're not living in that kind of extremes but I think you know some of the things you touch on are really uh, key to where artists should be thinking and looking and acting right now now in the last 10 to 15 minutes, I don't want to, let's sort of take, take the attention away from, away from Neville and Aida and just go back to that question. So think, thinking it's trying to sort of get a discussion, which is, so having listened to all of that and with our own experiences, what do we think is the role and value of the artist in a changing society? And I suppose there's something of there, so having answered that question, we can take that in different ways, how do we articulate that? Because certainly one of the themes coming out of this morning's session was about the extent to which others understand or share the sense of the role of the artist. So just just, just any thoughts, not, not, not sort of questions necessarily um, to either Neville or Aida. Yes. Adam's Faceless Company, uh, outdoor performers and community artists. Um, the thing that I was thinking about just now, and I think Ada, you kind of came to that in the end but you said for you the value was that about how the artist can be valued and that they achieve their vision and I was just sort of words in my head going no, no, no because for me the most important thing is that the artist helps individuals to to look at their world in a fresh way or, and, and that's what you came to say yeah. so <laughs> thank you um, and then by helping those individuals to look at their world in a fresh way, then hopefully we can then make a collective change in the world in which we live. And I think it is that personal contact for which you then went on to say, I think those artists couldn't say anything in that extreme situation in which they were because they had to find something to say on behalf of their communities and not on behalf of themselves. And I think that was really key, and I think that is really key in the way that artists can change the world. It's to be that sort of conduit, that provocateur, that uh, voice sometimes for the people to, to say something on behalf of the people. And that goes back to one of those themes that I said I'd picked up, which is about the artist. Is he or she reflecting, contributing... Um, foreseeing in terms of social change. And, and Any that's other, the value. Let's, let's, let's exactly. try and get a discussion going here, because otherwise it's just going to keep going. Any other comments from the floor? Go on. physics of, of society and how change happens in society and particularly in this era of disruption that we're experiencing and it's very politically um, disruptive environment that is the state of the arts at the moment and um, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking about the role of the artist and is this role becoming threatened in a way because you know uprisings are happening it's the people on the street who are taking action it's the people on the street who are um, you know camping outside St Paul's Cathedral and so the artist's role has has been a very kind of very sort of catalytic um, but also now communities are taking action in that sense and I'm kind of interested in 
therefore the you know the interchange between the artist who might have been the catalyst and now just the person who has you know got so frustrated with the state of society then how that starts to affect its own collaborative action thinking what bev was saying about collective action how you know how that dynamic might be shifting and what we understand or what the you know what we understand from a society's point of view in terms of what an artist's role is these days i think you know it's so very interesting point of any responses to that so there's something about artist as citizen citizen as artist and what are the respective roles in terms of catalyzing change um, I was just thinking about um, the London riots more specifically, um, and I wonder if the, the lines are being blurred more between who can be an artist, who is an artist, sort of people who are standing up and thinking sort of more like the clean-up post-riots, um, sort of people who were organising that, sort of the advocates for their communities. Are they the artists, um, you know, the ones who are leading the way? Um, into um, speaking up on behalf of the community and the fact that you've social media means you can spread your message so quickly and so widely. I think it, who, who is an artist, I think that's blurs the lines a lot for that. And then you wanted to come back and you sort of asked this sort of question earlier. So have you got a further? Um, personally, I believe that um, the artist isn't really being left behind, but it's now the artist's job to document that change um, and analyse what's happening. Um, I think, in its, in its own sense, um, you know, these times we're going through the protests and these riots are art in themselves. Um, and in a way, like you said earlier, the artists kind of forced all these things happening. Um, and now they are. It's up to the artists to take it all in and document it in a way where, in a hundred time, hundred years time, people can look back and say, "Wow, this is how the people felt." Because sometimes writing it all down just isn't the same. Um, and if you put that through a dance or a song or an image, it, it triggers a feeling. Um, and I feel like it's down to the artist to capture that feeling um, and then take it from there, really. At the back. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more because it, it often occurs to me that we've, we've shifted in many ways as to what we think of as, as artists. It's, it, there is art being produced, but there's also documentation being produced. I mean, we've passed the point where there are more cameras in the world than there are people that speak English. So in many ways, we've, we've reached a point where the image and the sharing of the image is part of democracy in its widest, widest point. Um, but for me, I'm not entirely sure the question is what role are the artists playing now, but what role are the art, could the artists play? Okay. And I think that's actually what the speakers have, have brought up. What, what could it be? Okay. Because if you take the riots as an example, um, we, we had some trouble disturbance in Manchester here, and, uh, and I went out to have a walkabout while it was happening. And then I watched videos of what happened afterwards. And one of the videos still sticks in my mind. There, there are a couple of really powerful videos around there. One of them sticks in my mind of... of some looting that happened on Oldham Street here in Manchester. And it was taken from above an electronic shop. And the thing that was interesting to me was that being out on, on the night and walking around, um, there were lots of young people, and they were traveling in groups. And they were almost promenading <laughs> rather than rioting for most of the time that I was there. I actually saw very little trouble. And if you watch this video of what happened on Oldham Street, 
um, what you saw when you actually looked was a group of young people who, who bust into the shop and were walking off with televisions and were walking off with, with whatever they, they fancied from that particular shop, but far, far, far more young people walking by and not creating a problem, not participating in that. And to me, when I ask what roles the artist could have when we start to talk about those kind of things, is actually to look at the values and remind us that while we were seeing media reports over and over and over again, while the media would have played that particular film clip and said, look at these people rioting and busting out, and they may even have zoomed in only on the view of people going in and out of the shops that was taken. In fact, someone else needs to be there to say, what about those hundreds of young people who still walked by and actually had something else on their mind at the time? And to me, that's, a, that's something we have to just keep around, that we can look for something better than the media or documentation seems to, to portray. Right, I'm looking for people who haven't spoken yet. So you haven't spoken, and you haven't spoken, and then, some, then we'll come back to you. I was wondering about, um, my name's Gemma, I'm an artist, um, about the kind of possibility of what an artist could be in the, in the future, and, and um, perhaps an artist kind of already has this one already, but the sense that um, calling yourself an artist and living the life that you have to live if you're an artist is quite a political act in itself, and so I'm wondering about the role of the artist as being a person who... Um, presents a kind of alternative way of being in the world, not only in terms of the, the work that they make and, the, and the, the work they make being a different way for audiences to engage in the world or that's not going shopping or, you know, whatever, um, that that might be an alternative thing, but also um, the kind of... Um, that that person just kind of living within their community and being part of that community and saying, I'm an artist and I do this thing and it's kind of um, sort of a bit of a weird thing to do, but I do it and, and, and I'm, I'm a, as much as kind of part of this community as the postman or whoever, that the role of the artist is that they kind of present through their very being um, that there are other things are possible than the, than the things that we kind of regularly see presented to us as options for life within mainstream culture. Hello, over here. Hello, hello, hello. Um, my name's Tom Andrews. I'm from an organisation called People United. Um, first of all, I thought the speech, speeches were great. Mm. I thought they were brilliant, so thank you very much. Mm. I, I just felt... Mm. I just thought they were fantastic. Mm. Mm. Um, and I agree with most, most of the comments that people were saying. Um, a few years ago, and as basis of a lot of our work, I did a lot of research working with psychology departments and a lot of academic departments about why people help one another. Um, and it's fascinating looking at a lot of the science around it, around cooperation, around social change, around empathy, around values that people have been talking about. And it strikes me that the arts is fantastic at being a catalyst for some of these areas. Um, and I think it's fantastic because it's brilliant at communicating things in different ways that work for your head, work for your heart, get people involved. So I think it's fantastic in communication. And I agree with Neville's point about, I think there's a certain time now, there's a feeling 
I think, in the air of a lot of possibilities about things changing. Um, WWF, Friends of the Earth, did a big report called Common Cause recently, which is looking at campaigning. And their model for this was about, we get so much information, it's not really working, just shoving information out and getting people to thinking that people are going to change. There needs to be a greater look about our values and how we live. And it strikes me that the arts is a fantastic way of being able to tackle these big questions and these questions about how they class it as greater than self questions, these bigger issues. And so I think we're at a, on a cusp of a, a very exciting time and I think what's important is the people that are excited about this need to speak to one another and often these are small individuals and small organisations. We need to help and support one another in exploring how best to go about this. Thank you. And then at the front, if there's a, can you pass the microphone just forward? One of the things that strikes me is that art isn't about documentary uh, and it isn't about self-expression. Art has to be capable of being both good and bad in order to be good. You have to be able to look at a work of art or a piece of art, whether it's music or whatever it is, and say, what would this be like if it was bad? Um, too much art, I think, too much self-expression, if you like, um, is, is, is regarded as good because it's self-expression. Uh, and you, you, you can't see people condemning it for any reason. Um, I'd, I'd like to put in a plea, if you like, for artists um, for saying, uh, as Aida said, that um, artists may be expressing their community. They may be expressing something for other people, not for a selfish expression. And they may indeed end up documenting something. But it's also giving... Uh, a way of extending and expanding people's imagination so that at a much wider level other people come to realise what people in other communities and what people in their own community uh, are feeling and experiencing. And that, I think, is, is what gives art that indefinable quality that we all find so difficult to describe and to capture. So, do we have final words from Neville and Aida? We've come to... Yeah, okay. Aida. Well, um, there's several really great points yeah. that came up here on whether the role of artist as citizen and citizen as artist, I personally witnessed the citizen become the artist, and it was a shocker. It was incredibly shocking to see that amount of creative talent, and I mean with words, a play of words came out of these people's mouths when they were chanting in the square. Uh, it would be anything from the sense of humor of a young man refusing to cut his hair, becoming you know very bushy, very large, and then holding a slogan that says, I'll not cut my hair until Mubarak steps down, and a little drawing of his hair being you know, bushy. The sense of humor was incredible, and you're talking about a culture that Lives off of the sen lives off of our sense of humor. We we always have, and with the element of killings happening right in front of our eyes, we don't witness killings. 
except in the war of 73. So our generation didn't witness killings. For, so for us to witness our friends, loved ones, colleagues, people of our age get killed in front of us and cold-blooded, and then still have the ability to get up and keep fighting back without a weapon in our hand was incredible. I have not seen that level of creativity ever um, occur in such a short period of time. All this was unplanned. So the role of artist as citizen and citizen as artist, the artist was stunned to see this. They had a whole new belief in the people that they belonged to. Um, talking about advocates of communities, I can't say that there are single advocates. There are definitely collective advocates, and this is the Young Artists Coalition. That's why they use the word coalition in their, in their name. In Arabic, it's it'tilef, and it'tilef just means coalition. You, you, you say it'tilef, you know who we're talking about. And they did not want to be recognized by, like, they would probably hate me that I put their four, only four images up of the four young men who are my very good friends. But they were the ones who were behind all that, and they hate to be given that singular recognition. They wouldn't like that. And that's the whole advocacy of us, not of me. Um, I completely agree with this element of it ending up as a documentation, it turning out to be one, but it's not intended, of course. However, there's only one intention of, for example, the street paintings where it had to be a documented event, where we had to get the media, where we had to get the press, where it had to be published, just so we can prove that the accusations of these neighborhoods or what people think about this area is completely untrue and there's so much heritage and so much community that exists here. So I love that play of the lack of intention Thank you. that completely serves. Um, Neville, quick reflection. Well, I think you summed it up very well, actually. But yes. I think um, yeah, the artist has a role to play as an ad advocate. I think the artist also has a role to play as a conduit, if you like. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, I suppose I've been very fortunate and, and very privileged, but I think as an artist I have a social responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I would go further than that and say that actually... Um, I think, think as, as an artist, you know, um, given the opportunities I've had, it's really critical that artists uh, help support, nurture um, the young creative talent, which is definitely out there. Um, and I think I'm going to leave it there, okay. actually. Right, well, I mean, I want to say on behalf of everyone, I mean, Neville and Aida, I, I, I think we found your input inspiring and humbling and hopeful as well. So I, I, thought, I thought you were both Thank absolutely yes. fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, there were loads of themes I can't possibly summarise, but I mean, there was certainly something throughout that whole discussion about the role of the artists helping individuals to look uh, through fresh eyes, but there were sort of um, phrases that came out from you all about... Um, the extending of the imagination. Somebody talks about the greater-than-self issues, which I think mm. is, is fabulous, um, and uh, pre presenting a, an alternative way, sort of different options. So that's sort of role of the artist uh, playing, playing those roles. I mean, running through this was about a community's residence, uh, relevance, uh, collaboration. I mean, those were themes that ran through both of, of what you were talking about and much of what was coming from the discussion, so the importance there. And that question that we started to tease out, which was about the role of the artist in terms of, the, of a political small P or large P agenda. And it's quite, quite interesting because it was sort of like big P and, and small P. But, you know, so what's the role of the, of the artist um, in, in politics? 
and that question right at the back, which was kind of, you know, and, and re remembering that this is not necessarily just what is the role of the artist, but actually what could be the role of the artist, which uh, um, I, I also found actually quite quite helpful. And then the other thing that sticks with me is this concept of artist as citizen and citizen as artist and the sort of breaking down and the democratisation of, of that process. So much that came out um, of this session. I don't know that we've sort of met, met our um, requirements and sort of pinned down what the solution is, but I certainly found it interesting. So thank you to everyone here and thank you to, to both of you too. Thank that you. was fantastic. <laughs>